Folks, I'm calling an emergency edition of the Let's Run.com podcast. This is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson. I have woken the staff up in Doha, Qatar. It is four in the morning there, I believe. We got to do our weekly podcast. We promised we'd do it every week this week. I've woken them up. I don't know why. It's not like there's much, much has happened since our last podcast. Just kidding. Where to begin, guys? Stefan, since our last podcast, Stefan Hassan has closed a 10,000 with a 359 last 1500. Mukhtar Address has come from nowhere to somehow repeat as the men's 5,000 meter champion. A.G. Wilson came up short in the women's 800. Donovan Brazier delivered in the men's 800 with an American record and gold medal. The world record has survived in the 400 hurdles. We could talk about all of that, or we could talk about, oh yeah, Alberto Salazar getting a four-year doping ban. And, oh yeah, one more last thing. Kenanese M.F. Bakile has run a 201.41 marathon. Unbelievable. I totally forgot about Bakile. Yeah, Robert, you're listing all these things. I'm just like, I really can't believe that all of those things happen in the same week. It's kind of phenomenal and one of the reasons why our sport is awesome. I mean, obviously, sprinkled in there is one of the reasons why our sport's not awesome, but chaos it's a, it's a great time to be a track and field fan i would say the kwa is back everyone I, guys i don't know where to begin one message board poster started the thread is this the craziest weekend running since um ever i thought that was appropriately said in case you don't know who's joining us on the podcast in case you're not a regular in case you're just joining us in the world championships i'm joined as always by my twin brother and co-founder weldon johnson and as well as our a staff writer, and now the face of Let's Run.com, the man that was on BBC News live a few days ago, Jonathan Galt. Guys, of those things, which do you think it was the most unlikely to happen? Hassan closing a 10K and 359, Edris winning. Um, I'm not giving you a list in all, all four options. The world record survived, oh, five, six options, but world record surviving the men's 400 hurdles or Salazar getting banned. Why don't we start with whatever was most unlikely? We can start with that topic and then go from there. Well, to me, the most unlikely topic wasn't even listed there. It was RJ Wilson getting upset in the 800. I mean, going to this meet, who was a bigger favorite for gold than RJ Wilson in the in the women's 800? Maybe Noah Lyles in the two? Like, who, who forecast her losing, especially to a woman who, I'm going to admit, I probably didn't even know her name before this meet. Halima Nakai? I mean... I think I'd probably seen it on an entry list here or there, but I knew nothing about her before the meet, and now she's the world champion. Okay, wrong answer, John. Betting odds, Ajay Wilson was an 80% favorite to win. That means 20% of the time, she loses. So that happened. One out of five times, Ajay Wilson loses that race, the championship maybe. And hey, that happened. The Bekele run was just absolutely shocking. But the biggest, sh- the most shocking thing for me was just John handing me his phone last night. We were writing about 3.30 a.m. We'd left the track, decided to go back and work at the hotel. He was sitting next to me. He just hands me the phone. And I, I just didn't really comprehend what I was seeing. Alberto Salazar banned for the sport for four years. I've got to disagree with Weldon here. The boys called me from Doha last night. I was on my way home from the office. It was about 8 o'clock Eastern time. And they said, what is the most unlikely thing that could happen in the world in track and field right now? And I thought in the back of my head for about 10 seconds, and I thought, Alberto Salazar has been banned. So I predicted that. I, to me, it's Bekele. 
I woke up on Sunday morning. I was working late on Saturday, and I'm like, I can't get up at 3 a.m. to watch this race. I, I I went to the phone, and bam, 201.41. Are you kidding me? Now, the beauty guys, I know you guys, I, I would like to see a chart of what time you guys have been going to sleep. Kudos. I mean, not that the readers here are going to give you that much press to working to 5 or 6 a.m. I'm sure there's a lot of people that would like to leave their office space world and get paid to go to the world championships. But I realize how hard it is physically on your body. But uh, we need to have a chart of how late you've been staying up. But Apparently, you guys watched the Berlin race. Like, how exciting was that? Like, did you think he was going to get it? Like, I mean, he was in two seconds. Like, when did you realize he didn't have it? Yeah, so we were doing some work, and I basically had the splits on my computer in the background, and I see 101.05 at halfway. I'm like, hmm, this could be really interesting. I mean, they could totally blow up, but if they don't, I want to be able to watch it. So I went down to Weldon's room. He had a way to watch it on his phone, and... The race is going on and going on, and then suddenly Bekele's getting dropped, and we're like, oh, man, that's kind of a bummer, but, you know, Garamu could could run this – oh, sorry, Bohanu Legese, who was the Tokyo champ who was leading, we're like, well, he, he could still run a pretty fast time. And then suddenly here comes Bekele, and we realize he's going really, really fast. And you could kind of tell I, – I always kind of felt – I don't know about you, Weldon, but I always kind of felt like he was just a little bit behind – but it turns out he was actually faster than Kipchoge through 40K. And it's just Kipchoge closed his world record really close. But I, I didn't think he was going to get it, but I knew it was going to be damn close. Yeah, once he fell back, I mean, he got dropped second half of the race. And I'm like, okay, more bullshit from Bikile, essentially, at this point. I don't believe anything. I've been hearing every marathon he does, so it's going to be a great one. And I was like, well, that was fun while it lasted. And I have no idea why we were up. I think we had to actually get breakfast before it closed. And you said, oh, Berlin's going on. It's like, whatever. And then he comes storming back. And I knew they were comparing him to the actual splits of Kipchoge last year, which was a big negative split. So I thought there's no way he gets the record. I really wish I'd known at 40K that he's ahead of it. But once he hits the Brandenburg Gate, I'm like, this is going to be close, man. And it was just like Bekele, I guess. That was only, what, three years ago where he missed the record by just – what six Mr. seconds? Six seconds six. and two seconds in his two races in Berlin. Just the marathon's at a different level right now. We can talk about the shoes some other times. Clearly, that that's making a difference, but because there's no way all of a sudden that you know six guys are just or not six guys, but we've had one, two, what four guys break the old record at least. In the in the last thirteen months, we've had five performances by four athletes that were under Dennis Kometo's world record. And we've had Jeffrey Camoro break the world record in the half marathon as well, also wearing vapor flies. And some drugged up Kenyan break the half marathon record as well. And you, no one had ever heard of that guy before. Well, that actually, guys, it shows part of the problem of sport. I mean, you guys are full-time employees who cover the sport full-time, and you can't even quite appreciate it because you don't have the right splits. It shows you how the presentation is so important. But to me, it was just amazing to see him back. Let's just end the debate right now. The greatest of all time, Kenny Sibikili in distance running. Nothing Mo Farah can do can, can get that label now. He'd have to set a world record in the marathon and win Olympic gold in the marathon to get that, in my opinion. You know, it's just amazing. And and the race is so appropriate. I mean, he, who else comes from behind? He came back in, in the half marathon a few years ago against Geb and Mo Farah and won that. And this time, he not only has come back in the race, but he comes back like, basically writing his career off at 30K there. And now he's back in the discussion. Can he, win, can he beat Kipchoge in the Olympics next year? Hopefully Ethiopia puts it on the team right now. Just so, so exciting. I mean, it, it's just really uh, unbelievable. 
So enough Berlin talk. Let's get to the worlds. We need a sponsor. Did you guys know there's a tip jar on the podcast? Look in the show notes. There's a tip jar. Certain podcast apps have tip jar. I'm making the announcement. It's what time here? 4.14 a.m. We have not been asleep. Every single penny donated, net the credit card fees, goes to Jonathan Galt. Everybody, please tip. I don't know. You can even subscribe to a monthly thing. I'll try to figure that out as well. If you subscribe, all the money goes to Jonathan Galt unless he quits Let'sRun.com, and then the money will revert to me. So people... Tip Jonathan Galt, 4 o'clock. Robert joked about waking us up. We've not been to sleep. We decided to record a podcast for you guys. Emergency podcast. Because chickens have come home to roost for Alberto. Okay, I was going to go to Stefana's song because I was going to compare her race to Kenanese Bikila's great 10,000 meter races. But let's get into Alberto. And something that has been brewing for quite some, I mean, a, a long, long, long time. I mean, I've been hearing rumors about... Salazar and drugs since really the founding of let's run.com. I mean, a, a true story. When I showed up at Cornell in 2002, one, the, the, the first day of practice, we had a meeting. I mean, first, not even first day of practice, first day of sc- before school started, there was like a reception at the track there. Apparently there was a recruit from Oregon. He had been at the same high school as Alberto Salazar. He walked up to me and said, nice to meet you coach. Alberto Salazar hates you. I was like, what? I don't even know Alberto Salazar. He's like, yeah, people talk about drugs at athletics West on the, on your message board. He's not happy about it. So anyways, and then a few years later, we had another kid on the team and we all heard rumors that Rupp had received an injection in a hotel room in Oregon. We heard rumors that Rupp was on pregnizone in high school, all this stuff. Um, and then fast forward to the Magnus stuff. I'd actually recruited Steve Magnus to come to Cornell. Thank God he didn't come to Cornell. It would have ruined my reputation. He was like a 401 miler in high school and never broke four in college. People would have blamed me instead of blaming Steve. But, um, Right before the 2008 Olympics, was that eight, John, when, when Rupp won the silver? 2012. Excuse me, 2012 Olympics. Um, I, I talked to Magnus on the phone. He had these concerns about the project. And I remember specifically saying, this is a few months before, I said, Steve, if you don't tell someone these concerns, you know what's going to happen. And he said, what? I said, they're going to have two medals around their neck. Well, I think Mo Farah's got more than two medals on his neck. And then we had the David Epstein friend of Let's Run, ProPublica report, but then years, nothing. Very unsatisfying. And then I heard last year that something would be coming out before the end of the year. I remember writing my source in like the end of January and saying, great tip, buddy. Then I heard, kept hearing again that it would finally happen. Apparently, some people knew that the, that the decision was going to come yesterday, and it does. But what are y'all's opinions? I do have a strong opinion on this, but I'll, I'll unless you want me to share, John, Weldon, what first jumps out about you? I just think it's it's kind of crazy that it has finally come out. This has been, I mean, the USADA investigation of Nike Argon Project, it began as something very serious with the ProPublica story. And then in 2017, we had the leaked interim report. But I think the last few years, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a running joke, but it was something that people had almost forgotten about. It's like, well, they're, they're under investigation, but the investigation has been going on for four years and we don't really know what's going on. You saw, it's never going to say we've totally closed it. We there was just so much uncertainty if this would ever, we would ever get resolution on this. And now we have resolution and we know why it took so long. It's because you saw to charge Salazar and Dr. Jeffrey Brown two years ago, and they'd been fighting it behind closed doors in arbitration ever since with Nike funding their legal defense. So to me, the, just the biggest thing is this is finally out there and public and 
now you've got people weighing in on Twitter and, you know, athletes feeling they can speak a little bit more freely now. It's just finally we have a resolution, it seems. It's crazy that Alberto Salazar, unless this is overturned on appeal, is going to be removed from the sport that he loves. I mean, this guy's a running life, right? I'm pretty sure Robert, we grew up watching him run the New York City Marathon as a kid. And he won't be allowed to coach. I don't know if you're allowed to, like, you know, give people workouts or what, but just being labeled a drug cheat or at least, a, you know, whatever you want to term it, there's still no proof that he doped anyone in the NOP. But, and, and the charges against him, I guess, uh, do we want to get into the details of those? They're kind of specific and inside baseball, but it's a lot of that stuff doesn't matter. I mean, the British press is going like head over heels, forest tied to this. And if you're associated with this, there's kind of a price to pay. I don't know if you want to say it's fair or unfair, but we've just been waiting for years. It was pretty apparent. We're like, wait, looks like the least he broke the rule here for El Carnitine. Can you really be, run at your own like doping testosterone experiment on your kids? That to me seems like a gross violation of the rules. And then the third thing he was convicted of was he thought, and I'm not, he may have been even wrong in this. There was something about versus an injection versus an infusion. And he thought it was a violation. So he was worried about having a violation. So then he told his athletes to essentially, he lied to them and gave them false advice to tell them to tell something to USADA that was misleading. So he's busted for sort of covering that up. But those are clear violations of the rules. And I'm like, well, are we going to have the rules and go after this or not? But it's kind of weird. I don't know if bittersweet's the word that two years later he gets busted for L-carnitine and covering it up. Well, and can we also mention the timing of this? This news dropped on September 30th, which was a Monday night in the United States. But a Tuesday, a very early Tuesday morning, we happened to still be awake, but many of the athletes were asleep at the time. And so the people like Clayton Murphy and Donovan Brazier, who were Nike Oregon Project athletes, they found this out on Tuesday morning when they woke up. So Donovan Brazier, that morning, he finds out that the head coach of the team that he's a part of has been banned for the sport for four years, effective immediately. His credentials being revoked by USATF. He's not even allowed to go to the meet. That night, he becomes the first American man to win the 800-meter world title. It's just crazy that the story dropped in the middle of the biggest track meet of the entire year. Now, guys, I like to play devil's advocate, and my wife couldn't believe this when I started doing this with her last night, when I sort of started defending Salazar, because there was a point in my time when I wanted this guy to go down more than anything. But, uh, John, I, I'm going to have to disagree a little bit. I don't think we have resolution. Until the final appeal is over, we don't have resolution. But even, let's say that he does get the ban. To me, this isn't this isn't a great resolution. This is very unsatisfying. I, I got in an argument with a fellow journalist, I think, I don't know, one or two years ago. I'm like, look. If they just get Salazar for this L-carnitine and, and the testosterone experiment, I said to me, that's very, very unsatisfying. No athletes or no athletes are banned. Like, what does that prove? Um, and this journalist who is quite prominent um, and been involved in some of these cases is like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. It's like once you have the conviction, it just changes everything. But this journalist wanted the conviction. It wanted, and, and we've seen that in the public opinion. People are now piling on, et cetera. But, you know, it was interesting because we had the Fancy Bears hack about two years ago, and we don't want to get inside baseball too much, but it, there the USADA argued that, you know, it was likely doping that Ritzenheim and Rupp and these guys had gotten too much L-carnitine. The actual arbitrators determined they didn't necessarily agree with that argument. They said, yes, definitely Magnus got too much. You know, but Magnus is technically an athlete, but he's not really part of the NLP, so I don't really care if Magnus was doped. 
Um, so yes, it, it's a rule violation, but I don't know. I, I, if you ask me, I would say yes. Those other guys probably got too much too. But in the other part, like we're really banning someone. The anti-doping movement now has come when there's rampant EPO cheats and stuff like that. The anti-doping movement has now come to the fact where we're, we're banning someone for, and, and the arbitrators seem to believe this, that Salazar was actually doing a test to see at what level his athletes might be sabotaged. Now, uh, you know, my, my friend Chris Lee, I was talking to him on the phone today. He found that argument completely unconvincing. He's like, I don't believe that. He's like, that seems too convenient. But anyways, it's just, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I prefer, I, I prefer the anti-doping do the following moving forward. We only go for big things. I guess Alberto Salazar is a big thing, but I don't want to see the stimulant bands of three months. I don't want to see the testosterone in your beef. I want the EPL and the steroid sheets gone. And I don't want them gone for two years. I don't want them gone for four years. I want them gone for life, but I don't want the minor stuff. So, you know, uh, but a, a former, my friend, Walden knows that thinks they only have two friends. He texted me and he's like, look, he's like, and I had a lot of people say this. They're like, oh, Salazar deserved this. And, you know, I don't know that people were really piling on, but they're like, this is like, he was happy, but he said, it's like, you know, they got Al Capone on taxes. They didn't get him on the mafia hit. Yeah, but you're assuming there is a big mafia hit here to get Robert. Like, what if there is, what if this is all there is? No, I'm not assuming that these are people saying that. Uh, hey, I, I, I don't know. One thing that there was two things about the report. I think Walden wants to interrupt. The report misses a few things. And I think, well, some of this, we, we need to discuss at some point, the big role Nike plays in all of this. Because if they had ever stood up or showed that they care about airing even on the side of clean sport, we would never have been here. There was a message board poster, and he said they said essentially, Alberto was allowed to play in the gray area because of Nike's resources. And with Lance Armstrong, Nike supposedly had all these labs, and they were the smartest labs. And they, you know, they put Lance on the bike and showed their scientists testing Lance. They didn't know that guy was doping. And even when this thing whole first started out, Alberto was still emailing Lance and sharing the, the knowledge of these experiments with him. Now, Lance actually hadn't, this thing goes back so far. Lance hadn't actually been convicted at this point. This is how crazy far back this goes. It's only like six years. But anyone with a brain knew Lance Armstrong was doping then. I mean, six years ago. It just wasn't official. He hadn't been officially charged. But for a Nike scientist not to know, and Alberto not to know, like if you hang out with these people, the one thing that is apparent is Alberto would do anything advantage to his athletes if he thinks it'll help him win and if it's just technically illegal he'll go for it but if you play with that fire it's going to come back to you and you, you know Kara goucher this stuff isn't in the report and they give alberto the benefit of the doubt over and over and over again but he's sending athletes to dr brown saying you can't run from him. you don't see him take whatever he tells you don't ask questions that's a recipe for disaster and hey you fly too close to the sun sometimes you get burned up so Good point, Weldon. And we had it up those quail of the day, and I put it under the headline, Fair or Foul was the conclusion of the report. They said that the respondent made unintentional mistakes that violated the rules, apparently motivated by his desire to provide the very best results in training for athletes under his care. Under, unfortunately, that desire caught his judgment in some instances when the use of focus on the rules appears to have lapsed. So I, I thought the conclusion w was fascinating, but, you know, Weldon, I think you made a very good point, and I had actually copied down that message board poster as well. In some level, you can debate, you know, with if without more, should Salazar not be banned or whatever. But I, I think you're right about Nike. Nike has finally taken a hit. 
And uh, the weirdest thing about the report, there was two things, two hidden things that no one's ta- talked about that much. There was two things on there that fascinated me. One, Salazar admitted to being on testosterone in 1991. He did not retire until 1995. He said he applied for a TUE in 1992. So that's interesting. Um, it kind of implied to me when I, I talked to Alberto once, I had a meeting with him at the Nike headquarters. He kind of said, well, I wasn't on testosterone. Well, and t- he acted like he had a TUE except for one time. So not a surprise that, I mean, it's a surprise to be in the public now. So it's kind of interesting. He obviously knows testosterone works. He's got a subscription walking around with it. So you don't know what, you know, getting massage guys in the night off, we'll never know what happened there, most likely, unless Rupp, you know, comes clean or doesn't come clean later in life. The second thing, though, though, about the Nike thing, Weldon, was I found it fascinating. And a friend of me also mentioned this to me, that they're emailing the CEO of Nike, Mark Parker, about this testosterone experiment. And I'm thinking to myself, why would the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company care whether Galen Rupp can be sabotaged or not? Like they were sponsored LeBron James, Tiger Woods. Track and field is such a minor sport. Why would they, why would he even bother with this, A? And B, even if Rupp did get sabotaged, it would be so insignificant to Nike's image. Like why would they care? That was fascinating to me. Um, and I, I think one of the theories is Parker is just actually a track fan. He's like married to a former national champion, like his wife, I was told that won a national championship of some sort. So maybe that's it. You know, that part doesn't totally square. It's just really bizarre that Mark Parker's in on this. And if Nike was more forthright along the way and I don't know, made these people available, maybe there'd be some sympathy, but I was shocked at one, how negative the athletes were. They just, even some Nike athletes said he should be put up, but the other athletes just came out full force today, just blasting this guy because essentially they think he will do anything to win. And he doesn't really just as long as maybe it's technically legal, but you saw said, okay, like he was show, the arbitrator said, Oh, he was trying to technically follow the rules. But if that's the case, you go run a doping experiment on your sons and don't pre-approve that with USADA. Like when you, that's so far out there, you know, those two things don't square to me. My thing is like, I think in some ways Alberto thinks, look, I did nothing wrong. I think he can rationalize that. We all can rationalize a lot of things in our head. But then he actually crossed the line or thought he did and told people to cover it up. And it's just like these things don't square. He's lied to the public repeatedly at large. He said, Is that my athletes are just on vitamins. At the very least, you know, there's a documentation of uh, Galen Rupp. And this isn't in the report. And these things don't come out, you know, on the min- mindset of Alberto. At the very least, Galen Rupp, while in high school, was given testo boost, something to boost his testosterone as a high school kid. Now, Magnus thinks that was may have been just full-fledged testosterone, which is illegal. And just the Mark Parker thing is bizarre. The whole effing thing is bizarre. Well, can we talk a little bit here about Nike continuing to funnel athletes to Salazar, even though in June 2017, he was charged with multiple anti-doping violations by USADA. Nike knew about this because they were funding his defense. And yet you've had athletes like Craig Engels, like Donovan Brazier, like Clayton Murphy, like Yomif Kajelcha, like Sivan Hassan. They continue to get sent to the Oregon Project. Now, not all of those coaches, athletes are coached directly by Salazar, but talking to some of them today, I asked, you know, I talked to Clayton Murphy's agent, Paul Doyle. I said, when did Clayton find out that Salazar had been charged with these violations? And he said, yeah, he hadn't, he didn't find out until around the time of USA's this year. So in July, Donovan Brazier said he had no idea that uh, Salazar had been charged with anything by USADA until this morning when he woke up. And 
To me, Ranger even said he didn't know there was enough investigation going on, yeah. which you may find hard to believe, and I kind of found hard to believe. But Brazier also said today that he ran to David Radisha, I think today as well, for the first time ever. And Radisha's like, hey, man, like you're the guy I think you know is the one to watch in this 800. Brazier said, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I came onto the scene after Radisha retired. Uh, memo to John and Brazier. David Rodisha has never re- been retired. There was talk of him trying to compete at Worlds this year. So Brazier doesn't follow everything in the sport that closely. Well, he hasn't competed for two years. I mean, but he's not retired. I mean, there's, you think an 800 meter would never know that David Rodisha isn't retired. So this whole thing was crazy. The timing was terrible. I think USADA should have waited. Are they about sport or just like showing the power they have? And you know, obviously, if someone was like on testosterone at the meet, they should be kicked out immediately. But with a coaching thing and just the nature of her sport, maybe they want as much bang for the buck because it'll scare people off. But I think they should have waited. That was crazy. Murphy, you know, woke up today. He was sharing a room with Bryce Hopple. He moved out of his hotel the day of the 800 meter final. And essentially, Doyle's like, look, Murphy's at the athlete at the hotel with all these other Team USA and other athletes. He doesn't want them asking him questions. He wants to focus. So we just got him a new hotel room. And clearly Murphy was just off his game today. That was one of his worst races, worst race of the year, at least since, you know, the competitive yeah, season. He, really he was going. very despondent after that one. But I, I wanted to return to my previous point for a second in that it's not just Salazar that they're funneling athletes to. Dennis Mitchell, who is not currently banned, but has some very sketchy things in his past, including testing positive for testosterone, banned for testosterone as an athlete, and then last year, 2017, sorry, being caught on camera offering to procure testosterone and other PEDs for uh, an undercover journalist. And Justin Gatlin is say- and Kenny Bednarik have both said this year it's in their contract. They have, they've been told they basically have to work with Dennis Mitchell. So Nike, it doesn't seem like they're that interested in getting some of these sketchy characters out of the sport. They continue to support them and to continue to fund groups with these guys at the head of them. Right. I mean, I guess maybe fair or not for Salazar to take a hit. It definitely seems a little bit fair for Nike. And, and there's a, a, a few points that you guys made there. You know, Weldon talked – I guess Weldon was sort of helped summarize the Salazar thing a little bit better because I was kind of defending him more in terms of the details of what he's being charged for. It seems a little bit unfair to me on that. But I do think a long t- – one thing, Salazar – and Nike's backing Salazar now. But, um, you know, they disagreed. USA – Tavis Tiger said – Nike long ago put performance over the health of the athletes, and then Nike vehemently disagree with that statement. I think that statement is clearly true. I mean, they had Rupp on a supplement that causes cancer. Hasn't Rupp had cancer or someone in his family had cancer? I mean, yes, that part to me is, is clearly true. But I, I think in a larger big picture thing, Salazar clearly a long time ago thought about forgot about the spirit of athletics. Athletics is supposed to be about who's the best runner, not who has the best doctor or who has the best shoes. And, you know, I mean, obviously they work for a shoe company. I mean, I'm not saying there's, there's, you know, you want to have good shoes, but when you have a shoe that's significantly three or 4% better than another shoe, or even one or 2% better, it's really not a level playing field. And, you know, I, I also, I, I don't know. If, I have sympathy for them on the one hand, because it kind of seems like a tiny bit of a witch hunt, but on the other hand, I'm like, you know what? I don't think Galen Rubb should have ever been eligible to compete in the NCAA at all. How many NCAA titles did he bring to Oregon? You know, there was all the payment of it. He supposedly paid it back. How many people have told me that he never paid it back or that Salazar paid him back under the table? I've heard that from so many people that, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's kind of crazy. 
but you know, and, and, and John, you talk about, yeah. I mean, I've always wanted to make a shirt instead of saying, just do it. It says just dope. And it says Gatlin Jones, Slaney, um, all these people over the years that Nike has turned the other way to. So, you know, they, they, they hopefully this is a wake up call for them. Like we want to do everything. We need to lead the way Nike. You have the resources. You Without you, track and field would be nothing. But guys, we got to talk about the meets. Let's talk about something positive. One more yeah. thing on this thing, the whole Nike thing. If you're going to believe Alberto with his experiment, that means Justin Gatlin, everyone will take for granted that Justin Gatlin was on drugs, right? He was coached by Trevor Graham. Trevor Graham was doping us all as athletes. So I think we'll all accept that actually Justin Gatlin was on drugs. Having said that, there could be the possibility that Justin Gatlin didn't test positive. He was sabotaged by this masseuse, Chris Wetstein, who actually I saw one time in Phoenix, which is crazy. At the time, I associated him with Marion Jones. And so the story was that Gatlin says Wetstein sabotaged him. And then fast forward a couple of years after a meet, Wetstein comes up, who lives in Oregon, puts his shoulders on Rupp's. Rupp's paranoid. USADA says he did call the hotline, says, hey, this guy touched me. I'm worried about being sabotaged. And this whole test then came about because of that. And they're like, would you really do this? Can you be this paranoid? And you run a whole doping experiment without contacting USADA or tell them you're doing this experiment. It's kind of crazy. And that sounds like, okay, well, maybe you're that paranoid. But then at the same time, Wetstein some point along the way was punched out by a Nike employee, Llewellyn Starks. As far as we know, Llewellyn Starks still worked for, works for Nike. Nothing ever happened to him. But all this like shady shit is going on behind the scenes, and Nike was, was fine with it. So either Wetstein was sabotaging him, they knew about it, or Gallon was dirty and they knew about it. And they, they just they never cared about clean sport. They kept associating with all these people all these years. So it should have come out a long time ago, like, Gatlin should have disassociated from these people. They shouldn't have signed Gatlin. You know, somewhere along the line, you hang out with shit, you get dirty. You know, I mean, like, it's just kind of crazy. Again, one of my friends who Walton doesn't believe, I, you know, I have several friends. This guy's got a lot of money, seven figures, multiple times seven figures. He's got a lot of Nike stock. He's like, you know what? This shows such poor judgment to see Mark Parker involved in this that I would sell all my Nike stock. Except he's owned it for like 30 years. He says that he doesn't want to pay the capital gains, so he likes to slowly give it away to charity each year because there's no capital gains tax. But he's like, the fact that the, he thinks it's a sign of a poorly run company, it's kind of like, but I, I would ex, I would ex, ex, excuse it just because Salazar is like friends with Knight, and it's kind of like you still hire your boy from back in the day. But anyways, enough talk about the doping. Unless you want to talk, thanks to Fonasana's dope. Let's talk about the one I was a formerly Alberto Salazar coach athlete and her spectacular performance in the men, women's 10,000. Safanasan, guys, you know, if you're going to be the, the world record holder in the mile, you've got to make it an honest race. They kind of tried to do that. I think in the recap, we said she did, they did make it honest. I guess it wasn't that fast until the end, but a 359, 1500. In the first few hours after the race, it blew me away that that was possible. Now that I've had a little bit more time to think about it, I think it's. Not as crazy as I thought, but we, John, did you ever think we'd see a sub four? I mean, it literally took me, I think you too, John, like five minutes looking at the splits to make sure our math wasn't wrong. Yeah, that's exactly what happened, Robert. I was watching and I'm like, what, first of all, Letezen Gide, who made the big move with a mile to go, she dropped a 64 on her first lap with a mile to go. And I was like, oh my God, there is no way she's going to be able to hold on to this pace. It's like, that's suicide essentially. And Hassan fell back a little bit and then Hassan just closed like crazy the last couple laps. And yeah, like you said, I, I'm looking at the splits. I'm like adding them up and I'm like, this says she closed her last 1600 and 417. And I'm just like, that can't be possible. 
But it was. She did close it in 417. It was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, essentially, it just broke my brain. I didn't think a woman was capable of doing this. And yet, Safan Hassan went out and did it. And I just don't understand how how you possibly beat that. And none of the 10K women did, obviously. And now, she has come out with a statement. She came out with a statement about Salazar. And buried in that statement is the details. She's doing exactly what we want her to do. She's running the 1500 meters. The heat start today or later, later today on Wednesday. I mean, this is all sorts of awesome. I'm so excited. Oh my, oh my God. I'm so excited. It, this would actually be great. Let's let her watch her dominate the sport without Salazar. It would be amazing. Julian can coach her. That, I'm so excited. I was uh, Salazar. Maybe because Salazar's out. Thank God. What now? I'm going to praise USAD for banning Salazar. He's out. He can't control Hassan. He wanted to do the five. She clearly wants to do the fifteen. Make history. I'm so excited about it. That'd be kind of funny, right? If Alberto got banned, and if you guys haven't seen Twitter, you got to check check out Twitter. Maybe we'll put this in the show notes. Like there was a sign up when you entered the athlete area today at the stadium, and it's got it's like a mugshot. It's well, we a, don't know where this was posted. It's at the stadium. Where do you think else do you think it is? It's got a picture of Salazar's credential. It says, like, you know, not valid for today. And But they'd be kind of funny if, like, Hassan was going to run <laughs> run the five, and then once Alberto got banned, she's like, F you, you can't coach me. I'm running the 1500. But that's what everybody wants. I can still appreciate her performances, and it, her statement essentially said, like, all these charges predate when I joined the team. Um, Pete Julian, Brazier's coach, the assistant coach to Salazar in the NOP, I talked to him briefly. He's like, look, I'm not in a state to really talk about this. It's been a crazy day. You know, they, he said he was aware Salazar was charged. He thought something might be coming down. They obviously thought he'd be innocent, but they didn't think anything would come today. Everyone knew the arbitration. They both asked for the arbitration to be delayed until yesterday. The question I have, guys, is could they have just – the arbitrators ruled tomorrow. Could they have kept it a secret? You guys seem to think they could have kept it a secret for 20 days? You could take it for 20 days. I think that's what they should have done. But the NLP is killing the heat. If you think about it, Hassan could win the 15 and the 10. The 5K is super weak right now. Little Coco, Constance Klosterhofen, conceivably could win the 5K. Helena Burry may not, may not even start it. Besides that, it's just wide open because what's her name? The 10K is not coming back and running the 5. Gide's not? G- well, no, Gide's entered. In I thought five. Gide wasn't running. She no, she's not, well. She's listed as the entry. I don't know if she's going to start. The start but- list. Check the start list. I thought I checked today, and she wasn't on there. So that would just open it up for consequence. So they could win fifteen through ten k on the women's side. They've already won the eight. I mean, Brazier's coached by Julian, not these NOP, not Salazar. Matt Centrowitz, old five k, old NOP guy, could win the fifteen hundred. Craig Engels. You guys love Craig Engels. Holy moly! No, he he's not winning anything. Thank you, Robert. He could he could medal though. Please tell me you guys think he could medal. Yeah, I think unlikely, but he could. Could yes. Will no. If Kajosha had been allowed to run the five k and ten k, I think he could have won both. He could win the ten k as well. So, but guys, back back to Hassan in the ten thousand. I mean, yes, they've been having a good meet, but I, 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 you know, somebody pointed out after the fault in the message board. I need to call John Kellogg about this. He's like, look, she was only running her half marathon pace for the first half. So her closing super fast is not that crazy. And I'd like to take you back to the 2003 Worlds. John, you probably weren't very old and paying much attention to track and field back then. But can they say Bikile beat Holly Gabrasalesi in a 2649 to 2650? In the back half of that race, he ran a 1257 5000. That is so sick. Like it's amazing what they could, it's amazing how fast you can run at the end of a 10,000 if the first half isn't super fast. 
So, it, you know, the only thing that could maybe beat Hassan in 10,000 would be if Ayana was in it running world record pace. But, um, you know, you guys are talking about the great meet the NLP is having. How about the great meet that the U.S. men are having? They've won the 100 gold. They've won the 200 gold. We've won the 800 gold. The U.S. is favored to win the 400 gold over. Watch out for Steven Gardner. Remember, guys, we talked about him last week. He's still undefeated. He looked sensational today, although he didn't run that fast. But uh, he looked so smooth. Um, but the U.S. could win the one, the two, favored to win the four, and the eight. I don't think this ever happened at a Worlds. Fifteen, Centro? I don't think we're going to win the steeple, guys. That's out. We've already lost the five. Oh, uh, yeah, we've already lost the five thousand. And I don't think we're winning the ten thousand. But how sick would that be if we won the one, two, four, eight, and fifteen? Would be pretty crazy. I mean, yeah. Can we talk for a second here? Donovan Brazier just broke the American record to completely destroy everyone and win America's first world championship gold in the eight hundred. We've barely even mentioned this. I mean, this American record had stood since nineteen eighty five, and Brazier just comes out. I mean, I, I, my mind is blown right now. This was that was the greatest run by an American 800-meter runner in history? For a lot of reasons. I mean, one, it was the fastest. Two, it was the first goal we've ever had. But that was like the – that was, yeah, it was perfect. That was like the 2012 Rhodesia run for the world for the U.S. I mean, Brazier just delivered on every sort of – like what can you criticize about it? He took the lead with 250, 270 to go, and he didn't mess around. Like He could have played it safe, maybe waited 200 – he just said, no, I'm going for broke, man. Like, I've got this. I'm better than you guys. What are you going to do? And he just crushed everyone. Biggest margin of victory ever in a world championships. And of the fastest time ever. Championship record. Incredible. John says his mind's blown. My name's not blown that he set American record of one. What kind of surprised me was how he did it. When when the first lap's going off, I'm like, wow, this is kind of – I honestly thought it was a little bit foolish. I still think that was risky for him. I think he would have been safer just to sit in the back and then blow them away the last 150. But when he went for that lead at 525, I'm like, wow, this is early. I mean, it, it's early. But bold, I mean, gold goes to the bold man. And, and I mean, he was over at 700. He was over a second up at 700 meters. Yeah, but he, Robert, he shouldn't have gone to the back. I mean, I talked to Donovan after the race, and he's like, I'm like, what would have happened if you were like in sixth place? Would you have still made that big move when you did? And he's like, that was never going to be the plan, man. And it, it, may, it reminded me of uh, his breakout race, 2016 NCAAs. He runs 143 to break the collegiate record that had stood for 50 years. And he did it because Brandon McBride took that race out in 50 low. And he just sat on Brandon McBride and then blew by him the final 100. And this race, he obviously moved a lot earlier, but it was pretty much the same. He got excited because he knew that he got excited after the semis because he saw Wesley Vasquez, who is a known front runner. Everyone knew he was going to be taking the pace in this race. He was in the final. He took it out in 48.99. Brazier, without much effort, managed to slide in right behind him in second, maybe in part because they were running so fast. And then essentially when he decided to go, he's just going to be like, look, I'm better than everyone else in the race. No one else in the race had ever run that as fast as he ran today. And he just blew him away because he was better than everyone else. It was just sublime. It was a wonderful run. Bryce Hopple. Can we give Bryce Hopple some props? College, well, we're still in college, but now he's now professional for Adidas. NCAA champ. The guy had a fabulous season. Goes to Pan Am Games, looking at the prelims, sort of fizzles out in the final, and people are like, okay, he's going to be tired by Worlds. Nope. Advances out of round one, auto qualifier, right? And then auto qualifier in the semis? What's he time calling in round one? I think he's auto out of both. 
And then he's talking, oh, yeah, you know, US, we may, we're going to try to sweep the medals. And you're, I'm like, come on, man, you're getting a little ahead of yourself. And he's like, well, Donovan and Clayton are good. I just got to hold up my end of the bargain. Well, he almost did. I mean, fourth place. I mean, third was a decent amount ahead of him, but like fabulous run. It just shows if your dad comes on this podcast, great things are going to happen to you. So athletes, you want one of your parents on the podcast, send him on your dad, Monty. John, you should meet up with Monty. He's in town, supposedly. Well, well, and let's remember that Christian Coleman's dad did not come on the podcast and Coleman still won in a personal best. That's true. That is true. Wait, now I have a question. Since Alberto's banned from the sport, can he appear on our podcast? Like if we ask Walden says he's going to ask all these people to be on. Is that doable? I would love it. Hopple, how about this, guys? The anti-Jerry Shoemaker. Thank God he signed with Adidas and not the Bowerman Track Club because it was his 40th race of the year, if you count like 400s, relays, his 25th 800 counting rounds. And again, we've talked about this on the podcast. I told you when I first started coaching at Cornell, Lou Doozy, the Cornell women's coach, coach Morgan Houston, who ended up being number one in the world in 1500, he told me, he's like, at the end of the year, you want to have your 800 meter running about their 25th race. He said 2025. He's like, I know it sounds crazy. And guess what, guys? Bryce Hopple just proved that's that's true. PR in his 25th race. Now, admittedly, the 800 is a lot different than the distance races, but just a fantastic run for him. But, guys, let's move forward to 2020. No one's going to remember 2019 after after 2020. 2020. I mean, for us as track fans, it's just as hard to win the Worlds as the Olympics, but the general public cares so much more about the Olympics. As good as Brazier is, let's don't hand in the gold. And let's don't even – I wouldn't even put Hopple and necessarily Murphy in the final next year because – if Amos comes back healthy, he's going to be hard to beat. Emmanuel career is just as good, if not better than Brazier at, at, at peak fitness. You've got the other Kenyan from UTEP. John, help me out on his name. Michael Saruni. He's quite good. If Radisha comes back, all our bets are not. I mean, Radisha though, he needs to play. He needs to get with Josh Herman. I don't think Josh Herman isn't his, his agent, but Radisha needs to get his life in order. Get on the, Either get serious or quit and retire. Because, but if he got back, you could not rule him out. It would be crazy. Get on the Bikile plan. Wait, you really think a 31 year old David Rudisha is going to have anything left in the tank at the Olympics next year after he hasn't raced? It'll be, he'll have been basically three years without racing because he did, took off. He hasn't raced since July 2017. I'm sorry, the 800 is a young man's game. We've shown that time and again. Donovan Brazier won the gold tonight. He's only 22. Bryce Hopple, also 22. He got fourth. 31-year-old David Rudisha, I'm sorry. He ha- you know, he's not meddling. He's not even gonna- he probably won't even make it to the Olympics next year. Yeah, just like a 37-year-old Kennedy Benisa Bekele, who hadn't run faster than 208.53 in over two year, two and a half years, would never do anything in the marathon, John. Robert, that's apples and oranges, though. It's G-O-A-T and G-O-A-T. Don't ever gout, don't ever doubt the goat. I, it's it's different. The eight hundred is you need to like you're you're at your best in your early twenties. The marathon you can be successful deep into your thirties. It's two different events. And I I'm sorry if I'm disrespecting the goat. Rudisha is the goat, but I just don't really see any way he he wins the Olympics next year. Speaking of 2020, do you guys want to hear a nightmare scenario? Don Brazier, if you're listening to the podcast, please turn it off right now. So the USATF. They've got a couple camera people here, communications people. And they always in the af- they talk to the athletes, especially if they win gold. They're like, hey, you got to buy into 2021 Worlds. They're clearly trying to promote that. It's like a question they asked everybody at the end. And Donovan's like, yeah, great. You know, I'm going to bring it in Eugene. Everybody's going to bring it in Eugene. Um, and then somebody's like, hey, before 2021, you got Tokyo. And 
you know, you think you can get gold in Tokyo and right away Donovan's like, well, I got to, you know, making the Olympic team isn't easy in America. You got to make the team first. And I'm like, Oh gosh, Donovan, because of his nightmare, 2016 Olympic trials is already starting to freak out about the trials in the U S next year, but making the U S team won't be easy. I mean, Brazier's going to have like a, you know, his best right now. He's a second better than everybody, anyone else pretty much, but there's not a lot of room for error. Bryce Hopple's very good. Clayton Murphy's obviously very good. Brandon Kidder ran great. I mean, there's and there's a slew of other guys who can. Isaiah go, Harris, don't forget about him. Isaiah Harris. Go 145. But the one thing that's different about um, Brazier is his mindset. Now he just seems so much more mature. In 2016 in the trials, you know, he blitzed. What was his PB until this year? To the Diamond League this year. Sets a huge PB, wins NCAs, and his next race out, he bombs in the first round of NCAs, Olympic trials. It was just, it was a total choke, and there's just no other way around it. And he just wasn't ready. But I, it's weird, some of those negative thoughts are still there. But he said he talked to the Nike, you know, sports psychologist, Aaron Treasure, and he's compartmentalized some races and stuff and that sort of stuff. So I don't think you'll see problems, but I thought it was kind of interesting that when the guy started asking about Tokyo, he's like, well, I got to get on the team first. I think that's a good mindset. You know, you don't take anything for granted, and, but at the same time, Put your, you got to mentally put yourself on that team. Have we ever had a reigning world champion bomb out and not even make the Olympic team the next year? I feel like that – I can't ever remember that happening in the U.S. John, don't jinx him. Don't jinx him. I'm not worried about it at all. Walden thinks it's the mindset. I think his fitness is so good. He's just got that gear now. He, he's got an endurance base. But, John, let's play trivia for you. You say 800 is a young man's game. Guess how fast – first of all, do you have any idea when Johnny Gray was born, John? Well, Johnny Gray was 36 when he made the 1996 Olympic final, so he must have been born in 1960. John's amazing. That's John. Give him oh the tip jar, folks. Remember, donate there. John deserves a tip. Everybody, tip jar right now. Tip jar. Subscribe. Subscribe. Big bucks. Yeah, but again, Johnny Gray's the exception. He was a freak of nature. He made four Olympic finals. No one does that. John, how much you want people to donate? Like just ten bucks a month. Ten bucks a month for John. At age, that's not. Or a dollar a month. Starbucks. How about a Starbucks? Guys, and if we're talking over each other, it's because they don't have time to edit out the podcast this week. But at age 39, he ran a 145.38. How sick is that? Now, although he did set his American record in his third year as a professional, age 25, 142.60. So it is somewhat of a young man's game there. But, I mean, it's remarkable what he could do for such a long time. We talked about people whose dads were on the podcast or weren't on the podcast. We do one sprint thing. I mean, Christian Coleman just crushed it in the 100. It was like super impressive, no? Yeah, 976. And he won me big money, folks. All my bets were hitting early. I put $100. Seth, Mr. Coleman, I know you don't think I like your son, but I bet big on him. I think your son has an immense talent. I'm happy that he's not banned from the sport. I bet him $100. I think it netted me about 58 profit. That was quite good. And then I put down money on um, what was uh, a Christian Taylor. Thank you, Mr. Taylor. That paid over over a hundred dollars there. I was rolling. Mohamed. I didn't want to drive to Pennsylvania. If you drive to Pennsylvania, you can bet on the bronze medal. I couldn't do that. So I, I put $10 on him to win, but Mo, you made it, you made it worthwhile. The $10 so I lost out on that bet. And then Carson, I mean, uh, Ryan Benjamin, you're dead to me. Lost a hundred dollars on you, but I'm still up about $60 so far for the world championships. So that's been good. And one other thing about Coleman, his dad does PR, I think, for the Atlanta schools. I don't know if he's been coached or what. Coleman was so much better with the media. He actually, 
the key is if a difficult situation, answer some questions, give some sort of answer. Don't ignore it. Don't say you don't want to talk about it. He did that. Some of the British media was critical because Coleman, one point I would quibble with, he just refused to admit that he was careless. I would say he's careless. He's like, oh, I want to do better with the app. Like, were you careless? He's like, no. And I'm like, well, what do you want to call it? You can't screw up again for the next year or six yeah, months. Yeah, he, he said he needed to be more diligent, and yet he was not careless. The whole de- definition of being more diligent, if you weren't diligent before, you were careless right. by default. But I think he was you know, reluctant to go the careless route because he didn't want to admit any fault, that he did anything wrong, like right. in the sense of like cheating. Um, and so those questions were sort of asked. Even today, they asked Noah Lyles. They're asking sprinters and hammer throwers, and not hammer throwers, but pole vaulters about Alberto. And they also asked Lyles, who kind of had a little Twitter. He's got a rivalry with Coleman for sure about Coleman's situation. And Lyles is like, I'm glad he can compete. You know, good for him. So I, I just thought Coleman was much better with the media. I don't know if he's. And also, when John asked questions, his agent, Emmanuel Hudson, started snapping. Which I would assume meant like, hey, you don't have to answer this or give us some sort of answer. I we, I can't divine what Emmanuel Hudson was insinuating to Coleman. Coleman just answered the question, and the other time he started snapping, he answered the question. This was at the big press conference, so that was pretty interesting. So great run by him. I kind of wish he'd run the two hundred. He might have been able to get close to Lyles because well, here's what I want to know: Why is the two hundred starting the day after the hundred meters? I mean. Andre de Grasse said that he got the silver medal in the 200 tonight. And he was just saying like, yeah, man, I was tired. Like this is so many races in five days. The whole, the 200's over. We're only halfway through into the, through the meet. I just don't understand if you want to promote athletes running these two doubles, Coleman was like, he wasn't out of the stadium on the night of his hundred meter win until 1am. And then he would have to come back the next afternoon and run prelims in the 200. Doesn't make any sense to me. Give them some time to recover. It didn't make any sense. So much of the schedule doesn't make any sense. Why the 1500 double isn't possible for the women? Why there was a three-hour break today with no track meet? Track action. The, whoever did these studies should be fired. I will fly to Monaco on my own dime to tell you to figure out how to do the schedule. It won't take that long. Put me up in a hotel, and, and, and I'll do it. But, guys, we talked about who impressed in the mix zone. Seth Coleman impressed you guys. Who impressed me was Jacob Ingebrigtsen. Let's talk a little bit about the 5000. He doesn't win the race. But I grow tired of the Steve Prefontaine talk about how he ran for the gold and all this stuff. But I was so impressed by the Prefontaine move by, by Inga Brixen. He went for broke. It looked like he was going to win it on the backstretch. Runs out of gas with 100 meters to go. Totally ties up, then dives over the line to get fourth or fifth. Very impressive run. But Mukhtar Edris somehow wins this thing. Incredible. But what what really impressed me was was Jacob Ingebrigtsen. He has learned at an early age something that I don't think Alan Webb ever learned. And so many people don't learn. It's okay to, to go for it and lose. There's nothing wrong with it. He was like giddy, it sounded like, from talking. Which one of you guys talked to him in the mix zone? He, he was proud of the race. He thought it was a good race. He ran within a half second of his PR. And he's looking forward to the 5 that 1500. Yeah, I mean, is anyone really thinking less of this guy for – making a big ballsy move with 300 meters to go take it. He's a 19 year old from Norway and he's taking it to the best East Africans in the world. I, I was just so impressed that he would even attempt that move and okay. Yeah. It didn't pay off, but he, he basically just signed up for the 5k on a lock. This guy's a 1500 runner. That's his best event. And he's doing this. He's just totally fearless and going for the goal. It was awesome. It was an amazing race. And then Edris, I mean, this guy, essentially came out of nowhere this year. Now, obviously he's the reigning world champion, but 
his results this year, he got an 18th in a diamond league. I mean, he lost to Ben True and, and uh, Drew Hunter in a diamond league in Oslo. And, and now he's the world champion yet again after just a humongous last lap. And, and credit to the Ethiopians. They ran this. They came in with a plan. They wanted to make the pace fast. Selman Breger and Telehun Bekele, they knew after World uh, Juniors last year where they got both of them missed the podium, even though Berega ended up running 12.43 that year and, and Bekele is the world leader this year. They decided we're going to make it fast. It was a 12.58 race and Ethiopia went 1.24. I mean, very almost perfect success for the Ethiopians. Yeah, it, it, that was a, a fantastic race. And how good is Edris? It, it reminds me, folks, he was getting dropped. He was ahead of Philip Ingebrigtsen when Ingebrigtsen, he was behind Philip Ingebrigtsen, excuse me, with 500 meters when Philip Ingebrigtsen dropped out. I've never seen anyone still in the lead pack just drop off the track with 500 meters to go. That was bizarre, but I think Ingebrigtsen just ran the lead and realized he didn't have a big kick left. But Edris was like in sixth place. There was a gap between fourth and fifth with like 400 as they approached the bell, basically. And he realized, hey, once if I get there at the end, I'm the winner. And he is the winner. That was a really exciting race. And, you know, people on Twitter are kind of making fun of that. We're going to get rid of the 5,000, really? Like, we don't want to see 3,000s in the Diamond League circuit. I understand that rabbit races are boring. Distance races are boring for the average fan who's not a 5,000-meter runner. But you need to support the 5,000 so that more so that talent stays in the event. It's really one of the most exciting events in track and field in the sense of how many how – many, all the distance events are like this. So how many events start at World, the final start, where there's like six, eight people who could actually win the race? It's not that way in the sprints because you had the prelims where they're going all out, so you know who's going to probably get the medals. You know, there's maybe four people that could get the medals, maybe two or three people that could win. Distances, like, that was crazy. There were six, seven, eight people. I mean, Edris, come on. Nobody would have picked him in the top six of their betting betting odds, and yet he's the winner. Yeah, but, Robert, this that's a that's an isolated incident. I mean, there were a few years ago. I know, like, Beijing 2015, I was positive Mo Farah would win the 5K. Like, it, it just happened. Like, sometimes there is a one dominant guy in the 5K. Mo Farah won it every year for, like, five years in a row. So – to say that the 5K is naturally just a more an event with more parity, I think is is inaccurate. It just happened that this year there was no clear favorite. I guess you're right, John. Normally I'm bashing on the 5,000 because I normally I thought tactically it just turns into a 1,500. This is driving me nuts when Algarus would jog around, run pretty well in that. But um, you know, guys, we've talked about the 10th, the women's 10,000. We've talked about the men's 5,000. We've talked about the men's 800. We haven't talked much about Ag Wilson losing the 800. One thing real quick. I got that Ingebrigtsen audio. I pulled it up, so I'm just going to try to give it to you. It's going to play here on the phone. Hopefully you guys can hear this. Jacob Ingebrigtsen, after taking the lead with 280 to go in the 5K and coming up short. He first says, this is a great race. Then he says this. It's crazy uh, being a part of being part of this and uh, running against those uh, crazy fast guys. But uh, I was going for gold. And, uh, uh, I, I gave it my best, and I'm, uh, I'm exhausted, but uh, it's a cool to be a part of this, and I'm, I'm really happy with it. What did your brother say before the race? It's funny how cra- he's still out of breath at that point, even though he'd been through so many media interviews before reaching that part of the mix zone. Let's hope it doesn't wipe him out for the 1500. If you're center with or somebody like that, you got to be enjoying that a little bit. But just a fantastic interview. Really, what I mean. It's weird. I, I didn't – for some reason, I was kind of rooting against him. I know as a journalist, I'm supposed to root. But now he's won me over. I'm a big fan now. But it's still, I, I like to hate on my own race and like to see the genetic superiority of the Africans proven when they win. So there you go. Go Africa. But, guys, we 
AG Wilson, we, we talked a little about her losing. I, if you'd asked me to make one bowl prediction, I mean, aren't that many bowl predictions. I would have said AG Wilson losing. I know there was no reason to predict that, but she did lose. She had been winning all these diamond league races, but the times weren't that fast. And you guys in the recap, you guys said 57 was perfect. That's what you know me runs. But as a former coach, my problem with, with, with the 57 was the way it was run, John. 26 for the first 200 and then a 31. Like, that's not efficient at all. She burned a lot of energy. Now, Nakai, or whatever her name is, how do you pronounce it, John? I think Nakai. Okay, Nakai, who won, wasn't that far behind. Halima Nakai. She wasn't that far behind Wilson. So, But still, I, I thought maybe the first 200 was, was too fast. But, John, do you really think the tactics are why? I mean, it seemed like Gould kept trying to come by her and, and AG kept trying to hold her off. And my favorite adage is you only have one move in the 800. Do you think it was the tactics or do you just think she was tired after a long season? Like what went wrong there? Yeah, well, all right. First of all, I'm going to call Robert you out here, Robert. You just tried to claim credit for making a bold prediction that you never made on record anywhere that RJ Wilson <laughs> – would lose at world championships. I mean, I, I don't remember ever hearing you say that. So I, I just don't, I'm not giving you any credit for that. Anyway, why did I think she lost? I think tactically she ran pretty, pretty close. She ran her normal race that she runs every race this season. And every time Semenya wasn't in the field, she won. And I don't think she can really be criticized. I mean, she went a little hard early, but that was to make sure she had the lead at 200 and she can control it. She, her split through 400 was about the same as she ran at USA's. The difference was she ran slower on the second lap. Then at US, USA's, she ran 157. If she ran 157, she would have won this race. She ran 158 high. That wasn't good enough. And I don't think it's because, I mean, yes, she fought to hold off Natoya Ghoul on the back straight at the second lap. But I don't know. I, I think she ran the race that she's run that has delivered victories all season long. I just think she wasn't quite as good as she needed to be, and that's why she lost. Yeah, I think there's a tendency to criticize tactics when people lose. You know, it's like if if Brazier had won, I would have said, I still think he went a little too hard in the backstretch, but he got the American record, so what am I complaining about? But with Wilson, if she had, if she'd let someone else lead and she still lost, I would have been like, we would have been like, how stupid. Well, she's led all year. Why would she lead? But the difference in the Diamond League races, there is a rabbit ahead of her. I mean, if Gould wants to go out in 26, I think one of the key things in the 800, and, and AG is normally really good at this, but admittedly, normally there's rabbits, although I guess USA's there's not, is to know what pace you're running. Take the watch off in practice, and you should know what a 27 feels like, a 28, a 29. You should be able to run the 800 without a watch and know your splits. And then it really helps you conserve energy. If if Natalia Gold wants to run out, go out in twenty six, you should be thanking her. Just just jet in behind her, and you've got a rabbit. You you could be what Donovan Brazier was to Wesley Vasquez today. Just ride that train for the first 400, 500, and then just blow everybody away on the backstretch. But you know, Raven Rogers, what a crazy close. Speaking of bold predictions, I think I was the one who challenged John to a bet on the air that. Ajay Wilson. He's just raving how Ajay Wilson was guaranteed. And I said, John, I'll bet you a hundred bucks. Like, I think I said three to one, she won't win. Something like that. If somebody wants to go back and find the audio, I'll pay you $10 if you get that to me. I'll pay it out of my own money, but I'm pretty sure I'm the one who said that. You know, obviously in the prediction contest, when I had to pick one person to win, yes, I thought Ajay was better than 50% to win. So I picked her, but I thought the chance was there for an upset. And unfortunately, I was right. Uh, just she picked the, the wrong race to lose. I mean, 
But Raven Rogers was like a rocket out of, I don't know, what do we call it now? It was just crazy, that final 100. Another 10 meters, she wins the race. But Uganda. Uganda and the U.S. are now the 800-meter powers. Yeah, interesting fun fact about that. First and fourth from Uganda, Halima Nakai and Winnie Nyondo, their training partners. And second and third, RJ Wilson and Raven Rogers from the United States, their training partners as well under Derek Thompson. So pretty cool that two sets of training partners took the top four spots in that race. And also in both groups, sort of Winnie was better than Halima kind of coming in. And the order was reversed here. And RJ yeah. had never lost to Raven Rogers before the world championship final. She was 22 and Oh, and that was her first defeat. I'm going to try to stoop stomp John on something right now. Fun fact, John, which the, y'all just talked about those coaches, which men's 800 meter finalist was a member of one of those two training groups. Wait, say well, the question again? There aren't many men's 800 finalists, so it narrows it down specifically. I'm going to guess it was probably Wesley Vasquez, member of uh, Derek Thompson's group. That's what I was told. A friend of mine, another friend. Walton doesn't believe I have friends. I have like three friends that – well, it's not true. I have like three friends that call me regularly that know a lot about track and field before. And then Ross McGowan, who listens to the podcast, I love you, Ross, but he doesn't call me very often. But – yeah, I was told that Wesley Vasquez used to be in Derek Thompson's group, and he was like a 147 spare. Now, the person that told me to it sort of said it in sinister ways, like, and then he goes home and is insinuating some things I don't want to really talk about specifically in here, but um, I didn't know he's part of the Derek Thompson group. He used to be. He's not anymore. So I sort of stopped John, but John, you, you could pass one of those like consulting tests. Yeah, I, lo- I logic that one out. Very good, John. I'm going to hire you at, at uh, McKenzie Consulting. We're going to quadruple your salary. But, uh, guys, we ha- okay, we, we said we want to keep this to about an hour. We're almost at an hour right now. The only distance event, I think, that's in the books that we haven't talked about and we haven't even prepared for next for the second half of Worlds, women's steeplechase, Beatrice Chepkowicz comes through as the favorite. Emma Coburn gets the second. Anything we really need to point out here? I mean, it pretty much – well, I guess Coburn, she was by far a lock for second place. But anything you guys want to say about that race? So, yeah, two, two things. One, Emma Coburn talked after the race about how she was essentially running for a medal rather than running for gold. But to me, it was essentially the same thing because what is the best way that she's going to beat Beatrice Chepkowicz? It's to run, essentially, for Coburn to run a PR by pacing herself correctly and hoping that Chepkowicz slows down enough after going out so hard. And Chepkowicz did go out really hard. The problem is she didn't slow down. She ran 8.57, which uh, no one else in world history who hasn't been busted for doping has ever run. So I don't think anyone in that field was going to beat Chepkowicz tonight, no matter what they did. So Coburn essentially gave her the best chance of winning if Chepkowicz did somehow blow up. She ran 9.02.35, which is a personal best. And point number two, Emma Coburn, Weldon pointed this out to me after the meet, so credit to him. Three straight championship finals, three straight personal bests. She ran 907 American record to get the bronze in Rio, 902 American record to get the gold in London in 2017, and then 902, not the American record because Courtney Frerichs has that, but she does that to get the silver in Doha. So really impressive. And I guess one other bonus point I was going to make, Courtney Frerichs 
essentially gambled in taking the risk to let this one race, the World Championship final, define her season because she ran pre, she ran USA's, she did run that Sunset Tour race. She ran a you know fifteen hundred there, but essentially she had three races this that mattered this year, and she got sixth. And so that's not what she wanted. Clearly, she had the silver in London. And now it comes down, was it worth it to skip and not race for two months, essentially skip almost all of the season, even though she seemed to be healthy throughout for a sixth place finish at Worlds? And that's a question I think she's going to have to ask herself during the off season. I'm fine with not racing very often, but I'll tell you the best workout is a race. You go really hard. I actually think that that time trial that, that Mohamed did, you know, may have helped him. At least he didn't race, but he almost did a full race. You know, but John, I got to correct you on one thing. Chip Cohen did slow, I mean, she went 252, 302, and then 302. She just didn't blow up. But yeah, the, the best, you know, I thought Coburn's tactics were fine. Her, the best way, to, I actually think Chip Coach, I think she's put herself in, she wants to gap the field and maybe not get in, in, in trouble. But by going out that hard, well, record pace, she put herself in a little bit of trouble. Um, but Obviously, she held up the win. One thing about Fryrix is she was still in that lead pack. She was actually ahead of, uh, of Kraus, Kraus of Germany, who got the bronze, reminded me of Edris. She was just barely hanging on to that lead pack. And then she moved up. I mean, she didn't win the race, but she got third. So, guys, we don't, I don't know if we think, I don't think we have time to preview everything. It's probably almost 5 a.m. there now, right? Um, but we, we have, uh, I'll tell you which men's distance and women's distance races are still left. Tell me, let's, let's talk. Let's take one men's and one women's race that you're most excited about. So we've got both 1500s, men's and women's men's steeple final, women's 5,000 final men's 10 K final and the men's marathon. John, which of those men's races do you want to talk about? Yeah. Of those options, Robert, I would say probably the men's 1500 meters. I know supposedly it's going to be very predictable because Timothy Chariot's the heavy favorite, but you know, I think we saw in the Diamond League final, Jakob Ingebrigtsen looked pretty impressive. And I know that Chariot had a gap on him, but they closed that last lap in about the same time. And I think it's a championship one-off final. Anything can happen. Centrowitz, I'm really excited to see how he does after that 13 flat in Portland. Craig Engels, I think, is in with a shot at meddling, you know, if everything breaks right. And, yeah, that, that to me, 1500 is usually my default answer when it comes to distance finals. And it's not going to be an exception this time. That is kind of crazy that Center ran 13 flat. I mean, he, could, he did get beat by Woody Kincaid, but Woody Kincaid, people are starting to talk about him. It's not like the old Woody Kincaid. Woody Kincaid's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, before it's sort of a joke, oh, he got beat by Woody Kincaid, but nice run at USA's for the guy. And then 12.58. Mohamed, show what's possible. You don't have to win an NCAA title to win a world championship medal, but. Yeah, the, the 1500 is going to be really exciting. I would like to see Timothy Chariot win it, win it. Timothy or his agency, if you're listening to this podcast, please do not try to do what Jip Kowich did. Do not try to break this race open. It's going to come down to the last 150. You can go out pretty hard. You can go out in 56 if you want. You can relax a little bit in the second or third lap. But just squeeze that down at the end. These guys will not come with you. Don't do anything stupid. Don't go out in 53. Anything like that. But men's 10,000 is going to be pretty sick. And, I mean, Caputo, how good did he look in the men's steeplechase today? He could pull an address and come out of nowhere to win this thing. So that's the men's races. The women's races, we only have the women's 1,500 and marathon left. Oh, excuse me, women's 1,500 and 5,000 left, if I'm correct. Haven't made any mistakes there. John, which one 
most excites you? Obviously, I know the answer. Yeah, we all know it's the 1500. I mean, Hassan, that, that's all I need to say, really. But I'll, I'll add in a few names. Shelby Houlihan, again, totally MIA since USA's. We don't know what to expect from her. Uh, Jenny Simpson. Uh, the queen of the 1500 medals, four of them. Can she get a fifth? And then you've got Laura Muir coming back. You've got Faith Kipugon, the defending world and Olympic champion. I mean, I I think Hassan has to be the favorite, but Kipugon is really, really good. Uh, but she also hasn't been racing that much. She did come back and win the Kenyan trials. But other than that, she only ran pre, which she won. So that to me is fascinating for many reasons. It has to be the 15. And I guess I'm going to pose this question to you, Robert. What would be a more impressive accomplishment? Winning a 10K with a 359 last 1500 or winning 1500 gold and 10K gold in the same meet? Yeah, this the latter, definitely. I mean, I, I think that once people point out it's a half marathon pace, the 359 is, I mean, it's crazy, but to, but to do 10,500 is incredible. Considering she's never won the 1500 when she's done it before, that would be unreal, unprecedented, so exciting. I mean, people always talk about, oh, Rupp ran a 349 indoor mile, Fair ran a 328, put them in the 1500. Those guys would get smoked. There's just been running fast in a time trial and actually changing gears and winning a 1500. But they need to hand out like six medals in the wins 1500 because there's so many big names in it. It's just a really, you know, exciting event with, with big, big names. Whereas the 5,000, I mean, G'day of Ethiopia is quite a talent, but – you know, she's not a big name necessarily, even though she, I think she was a two time world junior cross country champion, which is pretty sick to win two titles, right, John? Yeah. I mean, it's, you, you basically you have to do that before you turn 20. So it means you're winning at like 17 and 19. And you're a 17 year old beating a bunch of 19 year olds. So, yeah, you got to be pretty freaking good. And Robert, Son doesn't have a coach. So, should we put out some feelers? You want to fly over here? Oh, right. Since I offered to coach the other. The British 1,500-meter runner, I guess I could pick, take up both of them. Well, it's actually interesting to think, since she is Nike and she's living in Portland, well, now she joined Jerry's group and have to train with her main rival, Shelby Houlihan, or one of her main rivals. No, I mean, to me, the solution's simple. Keep the Oregon project together. Just have Pete Julian's having a lot of success with his athletes. Craig Engels just came out with a Instagram post today, you know, listing all the accomplishments, the wins that they've racked up. I mean, Constanza Costa Halfen. What, you know, she she could she could win this whole thing in the five k. So, to me, the solution for NOP is simple: is just hand the reins to to Pete Julian. All right, guys, we've broken down the track action. People, people but the fans, they really want to know what life is like in Doha. What you guys are doing over there? How is it on a daily day to day basis? Apparently, you've been staying up to five or six a.m. But um, what are you guys wearing? Are you wearing the robe-type white outfit? I, I looked it up on Wikipedia. I've, I've forgotten the name, though. Are you wearing those around town? What are you drinking and eating? Well, it's 5.25 a.m. We're doing a podcast, and we haven't been to sleep. Sun's about to rise. So Sun will be up time. about 5.35. So once again, people, tip jar for John. Tip jar, please. Are you guys going to get in trouble for being in the same room together as two men? Hotel room. This could be a problem. We were curious about this because this is not the first night we've spent, you know, we've gone into the same room in the wee hours of the morning. And, you know, the fact is we're just working and getting our site updated. But we are wondering if they have, you know, CCTV and watching us and monitoring this behavior. Yep. And, you know, Winnie and Halima, uh, Halima, the 
800 meter gold medalist. She said she got scared the other night and her roommate is her training partner, Winnie. And so she said, they, she's like, help, I'm scared. It's like she crawled in the same bed. And she was still allowed to win 800 meter gold. So maybe things are opening up here. But I don't know. I mean, in all seriousness, we the meat goes, we haven't left the meat probably before two any day. But they have some food trucks outside. There's a mall right next to the meat. It's called the Bellagio, but with a V. We go there and eat before the meet. We stay at the meet. There's no morning session, so you're pretty much there from like 6 to 2 a.m. Then we come work, finish our work, and go to bed. I guess somehow I'm, I'm still confused how we watch the Berlin Marathon. Also, so the first night there was a marathon here at midnight, so we're up to 6. I think the next night we kind of got out a little bit earlier, tried to go to bed, and we have a great buffet at our like breakfast. It's from 6.30 to 10.30. I think we woke up at 10.30 to catch the end of that, and then that's how we happened to see the Berlin Marathon. Um, so we pretty much didn't just sleep till we pretty much wake up, go have lunch slash dinner before the beat and go to the meet. Our one thing of entertainment that we've done is we went to the pool rooftop, which is very nice for about 30 minutes yesterday or the day before. So we would have had some sleep today, but the Salazar thing broke and it took us probably three or four. I was up to 10 AM today without sleeping. And now I'm going to be up to six without sleeping, probably seven. So tomorrow I'm just going to sleep go back to the meet next day. When's meet 800 John? We got to get ready for that. We have not been training. That's Friday. That's going to be rough. Uh, I mean, my, yeah, us, my buddy, I'm not sure how it's continuing to sleep when I tell it to sleep because really there's no consistency to the sleep schedule whatsoever. My body's like drifting in all sorts of five different time zones right now. So you know, I'm halfway through the meet. I think I'm doing okay. Well, guys, as a former coach, let me coach you through this meet 800. Think of the positives. I imagine you guys have not been having any alcohol. Normally, you're ruining your body with all the beers. Have you found any beer? Weldon told me the first night there, I don't know if he was joking or not, that there was another journalist and he was bragging about how he found beer at 7-Eleven. He was downing it. So Weldon ran out of the 7-Eleven and realized they were only selling non-alcoholic beer. So this guy was acting like a high schooler at a party and drinking non-alcoholic beer. Weldon, is that a true story or did you make it up to fool me? And That's about 80% true. There's a guy outside of the 7-Eleven. I think he had a, might have had a credential on. He, I thought he was drunk. He goes, yeah, they got beer in there, man. And then I go in there and it's 0.0% malt beverage. So we had that. Was it the night of the marathon, John? We had that to celebrate some accomplishments. No, that was when I was on BBC uh, World News. Oh, yeah, when John was on BBC. I pre-gamed it with a non-alcoholic apple-flavored malt beverage. <laughs> Let's talk about that. That's how I was going to conclude the podcast, guys. I like to do none of the work, but take all the fame and credit and talk about my mediocre running career of 223 Marathoner. And I had appeared on the BBC radio early in the year to talk about Castro Semenya. And then I was devastated to see John as the voice, the, not the voice, the face of Let's Run.com. John, how did that go down? Why did they ask co-founder Weldon Johnson, have we been exposed as the, like, you know, Frauds, basically, you're the real journalist. I think we've been exposed to the Emperor No Clothes, Robert. You know, well, we're actually promoting the site, posting on the forums, keeping Let's, Let's Run a growing enterprise. You know, John's busy with a side business of tweeting shit out at the meet all the time. And apparently he's building a side business here, and they must have recognized him from Twitter. I don't know. Well, like, well, I, Twitter's I, the biggest pissing match between journalists. <laughs> it's the only people who read it. But I assume this is where the world news guy found John. I have a question. Uh, this is just... I'm just interested. R- Robert, do you, do you remember the name of the woman who won the 800 meters at this meet? Nikai. And Robert, John, okay. and 
John, Robert and John just admitted he didn't know who she was either before the meet. So yeah, but, don't let him big time you, Robert. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I was trying to call call out Robert, see test his credentials. Clearly, you are worthy of being on BBC World News, Robert. You passed my test. So I don't know why they chose me. I'm sure maybe xenophobia. It was your British born. They don't they don't like Americans because of Trump. And you're British born, so they wanted to have you on there with your sort of weirdest accent, half British, half American. We don't really know what's going on in the world. Is Trump still president? Is he impeached? Like, what's going on? Trump has been removed from office. Mike Pence is now the president. And, you know, think about it. Back in the day, you wouldn't know what's going on, right? Like, you'd have to – we wouldn't be having this podcast. You guys would be at Worlds and we'd get, like, a postcard and, like – All right, guys. Well, John, let's let's test your math, math knowledge. How many American mid-D medals have we won already? We've already got – let's see here. Three and eight hundred. Two in the women's eight hundred. One in the women's steeple, and one in the men's eight hundred. So we're at four right now. So that's four. Now a couple Olympics ago, we got seven, right? Yeah, lo- the lost. So the most recent Olympics, the most recent Worlds, the U.S. had seven in each of them. And if you're looking at the remaining events, got a pretty good shot in the women's fifteen hundred with Houlihan. Decent shot with Centro and Engels in the men's fifteen hundred. The other events. I'm not really sure if, how many medals are available, but yeah, I'm going under. I think you could say under seven. Well, I think yeah, probably under seven is right. But you know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I. I think at least one more American will will earn a medal. Yeah. Well, I guess the Bikile 201 and the Salazar band make up for the lack of American medals. Actually, we're having a good world. I'm kidding about that, folks. But you know, I'm getting late, tired. It's 10:30 here. So I, I, the other night I just quit working around 11 o'clock. I made you guys work till like 6 a.m. But that's the advantage of being one of the co-founders, John. So good podcast, guys. Stay out of trouble, and we'll see you next time. Tip jar, everyone. Tip jar.